Revelation 22, last week we uh, got up through verse 8. I'm going to start there and read all the way through verse 13. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. Let He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. Be He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We pray that you once again give us insight, understanding. Lord, that you would continue to train us, prepare us, equip us for what lies ahead. We're excited, Father, about our destiny, our future in the millennial kingdom with your son, Jesus Christ, and then on into eternity in the new Jerusalem. Lord, bless this study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the angel says to John in chapter 9, after John has fallen down at the feet of the angel, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. So the angel, a created being, just like John, created to serve God and man. He's saying, hey, John, don't worship me. I'm just like you. I'm a different level, if you will, or a different caste. But I'm a created being like you, John. Don't worship the creation. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. So from the greatest to the least, all men and angels are merely the servants of God and are not to be worshipped. And idolatry was the biggest sin that brought ancient Israel under judgment. And you know idolatry is rampant in our world today? Not just if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever. Those are different forms of idolatry. But in our worship of people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and athletes, professional athletes, movie stars, singers, rock musicians, and so forth, can all be idols and are idols to many people. And isn't it interesting? We talked about an untimely death. There's that 27 Club with Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, all these rock musicians who died at such an early age. And yet they were elevated as gods and goddesses, were they not? Elvis Presley died very young. God will not allow his glory to be shared with anyone or anything else. Michael Jackson, the list goes on and on. Notice something else. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. That would include every true believer because if you are a true believer, you will keep the words of this book. And that means the angel is also your servant. Hebrews 1.14, Paul, I believe, was the writer of Hebrews. There's some discussion over that, but I believe it was Paul. He writes, are not all angels ministering spirits? Now, in this section of Hebrews, Paul is showing how Christ is superior to the angels. He says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit 
salvation. Do you know that means in God and his foreknowledge, before the foundations of the earth, before the beginning of time, he knew everyone that would receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And so he sent out guardian angels, ministering spirits to watch over you because the devil would love to take you out before you could get saved, right? How many of you have had incidents in your life where you think, I probably should have died? I probably should. I've had them. I've had them. And so the angel is telling John, don't worship me. I'm just a servant. I'm just a ministering spirit. And you know, in order to guard us against that temptation to worship someone other than God, he's chosen to reveal to us in his word the sins, the shortcomings, the fallibilities of people like Abraham. If you've studied the Old Testament, you've learned about the life of Abraham, you know he wasn't perfect. Moses, David, Peter, the others. If this was some kind of fake, phony, religious book, God would have only portrayed them in all their glory. He would have never let you see their sins. But because they're real people who live real lives on this planet in the service of the Most High God, He let us see everything that they are so that we would not be tempted to worship them. James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. One translation says, Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. God uses imperfect people. Why? They're the only kind that are available. So the angel says, hey, don't do that. Worship God. These two words say it all, folks. This phrase sums up the essence of a godly life. That person or persons or thing or things to which we are most devoted. How do we know what our, where our devotions lie? Where do we invest our time, our energy, our money? Who or what do we seek to emulate, to be like? That is who or what we truly worship. Think about that. Worship God. Man is created to worship. Do you know that? And as a result, he will find an expression for that worship one way or another. Even the atheist. Humanism. They worship themselves. Shirley MacLaine saying, she is God. Many years ago, I am God. Yeah, you sure sound like God, don't you? There is no one who does not worship something. But only those who worship God will dwell forever in his presence in the new Jerusalem. And since you are created to worship, bound to worship, can't help but worship, I suggest you worship the creator. He's the only one worthy of our worship. Verse 10, he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now this is very interesting. As we draw near to the end of the last chapter of the last book of God's holy word, we see the fulfillment of that which was written in Daniel 12. Daniel 12, 4, the angel tells Daniel, so Daniel had some angelic encounters as well. He received some information from angels, just like John the apostle. But notice what the angel tells Daniel here. You, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of 
the end. Man shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This was a prophecy over 2,000 years ago about mass transit. Many shall run to and fro. I've told you this before many times, but up until the 20th century, man never traveled faster than 20 miles per hour. Can you imagine that? You wouldn't drive 20 miles an hour if your life depended on it, unless you came to a school zone. Space shuttle can go 20,000 miles per hour. So in the last century, this prophecy has come into fulfillment. Man shall travel to and fro, flying all over the world, LA to, LA to Sydney, Australia in 12 hours or whatever, and knowledge shall increase. The amount of knowledge that man has obtained, again, in the past century or less, is equal to or greater than all the knowledge amassed by the human race up until that point. And it's increasing exponentially at a rate we can't even fathom. To the point where the Terminator is about to become a reality. We have artificial intelligence where they can modify themselves. Robotics. Unbelievable. We've come a long ways from the Jetsons, folks. Railroad, Railroy. So, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book. And now the angel's telling John, don't shut it up, don't seal it. What does that tell you? And that was 2,000 years ago, folks. Daniel 12 8, although I heard, I did not understand, Daniel says. Then I said, My Lord, to the angel. What shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed. When? Till the end of time. God told Daniel to seal his prophecies concerning the last days until the time of the end. Folks, another one of the many indicators that we are in the last days is that the study and understanding of eschatology has exploded Eschatology is the study of the end times, the last days. It's exploded in our lifetimes. Very interestingly, and not coincidentally, when I got plugged into the Jesus movement in Southern California in 1970, it probably was already percolating in the late 60s, but there came a sudden onslaught and flood of prophetically oriented books. Hal Lindsey, Salem Kurban, 666, many others. All of a sudden, there was this explosion in knowledge and information and curiosity about. In fact, I've shared this before. That's what got me back to the Lord was the Holy Spirit started taking me to passages of Scripture, and I was like 16 years old, having to do with the end times, the last days, and so forth. And God got my attention, and I realized I wasn't ready. This has all happened in most of our lifetimes here today. So some 600 years later, after Daniel, God told John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Now you say, well, wait a minute. It's been 2,000 years. How could it be near? But Peter said, with the Lord, one day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. 
So from God's perspective, it's been two days. But now we're into this new 21st century. You could argue that we're now into the third day. And when did Jesus rise from the dead? On the third day. I can't imagine that it's going to be that much longer, folks. So it's been 2,000 years since John recorded these words. Jesus must be, I believe, right at the door. Matthew 24, 33. This is the passage, Matthew 24, giving us all the information about what to look for prior to his return, right at that moment when he comes back. He says, so you also, when you see all these things, the wars, the rumors of wars, the pestilence, the famines, famine, really? Now, until recently, that wasn't something that you and I could relate to as Americans. We know there are parts of the world where they do have famines, but not in America. By the way, did you happen to see that they had 22 different food processing plants across the country explode or catch on fire? When has that ever happened before? Very interesting. How many of you have gone into the store and seen the shelves half empty and the prices doubled? Food shortage. Biden told us we're going to have one. He ought to know since he's probably involved in creating it. Fauci said we'd have a pandemic like two or three years before it happened. I guess he knew. But either they're all prophets or they're all in on it. Take your pick. I don't think they're prophets. Bill Gates was also predicting pandemics. Yep, here it is, folks. Matthew 24, 33, so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. What is it? His return. At the doors, he says. Or one translation says, right at the door. So if you go back and study Matthew 24 all the way through, I believe you'll see that Jesus is right at the door. Verse 11, Revelation 22. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Now, does this verse mean that God is encouraging the wicked to continue in their ways? That you are what you are, no use trying to change? No way. It does mean, folks, the time is running out. Soon, this is what it means, soon the events of Revelation will begin to occur in rapid succession. That's what it means by coming quickly, swiftly, rather than soon. That's where some people get confused. Jesus didn't come soon. He must be a liar. No, I come quickly. I come swiftly. What he's saying is when that final seven weeks of tribulation begins, everything will unfold at a very rapid pace. So this means, let him who is unjust be unjust still. You've made your choice. You've made your decision. Multitudes will receive the mark of the beast and will be lost forever. There will come a point in time. We're not there yet. That's the good news. For anybody watching today online, anybody here today that I don't know, I think I know almost all of you, but if there's anyone that doesn't know the Lord, the time is short, but you do still have time. That's the good news. Because the time is coming when no man can work. 
There's a quote, I don't know who said this, but I like it. When Christ comes, there will be no more opportunity for a man to change his destiny. Now you have an opportunity, but when Christ comes, there'll be no more opportunity for a man to change his destiny, what he is then. This is what this verse here means. What he is then, he will be forever. John 9, 4. I must work the works. This is Jesus talking. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. Malachi 4, beginning in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. We've talked about this in the communion message. Conviction versus condemnation. Judgment, chastisement by God versus judgment of the world, the unrighteous world. The day is, which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. And see, people will look at this and say, see, God is mean, he's evil, he's bad, he's hateful. No, he's loving. He, it's a warning, folks. Why does he bother to tell us all this? Because he doesn't want it to happen to us. Okay? It all depends upon your perspective. You can read this and say, thank God for Jesus Christ, or you can read it and say, God's a big bad meanie. Well, for you, if you don't repent, if you don't confess your sins before God and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then yes, you will suffer. They will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name... The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. And some of us have kind of gone ahead of the program on that one. I don't think we're supposed to do that yet, but some of this has already happened. <laughs> okay, verse 12. Behold, I am... I love that. Jesus is the great I am. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Folks, if Jesus did not want us to believe that he's coming quickly or soon, he wouldn't have told us twice in this chapter alone, verses 7 and 12. I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. Isaiah 40.10, Isaiah 62.11. You know, no matter how many awards or rewards may, we may receive in this life, but the only one that really matters is the one Jesus is bringing with him. I think this is where a lot of believers get tripped up. And again, there's a lot of bad teaching out there that promotes worldly, earthly prosperity. You know, if you, God really loves you, you're going to be wealthy. And when you look at what happens to most wealthy people, I hardly interpret that as God's love. But we get focused on the things of this life and the things of this world. And if we aren't, quote, getting our socks blessed off, then either we think God's mad at us or we're mad at him. How many of you want his reward? Jesus' reward? Well, guess what? That comes when he comes. He says, my reward is with me. Any of the material blessings we get in this life are just frosting on the cake. But some of the most the strongest, most powerful, most dynamic believers that have ever lived on this planet 
and who live on this planet now have little or nothing in terms of what this world offers. Do you know that? And you know what? The less stuff you have, the easier it is to get close to God. And yet, what are we all focused on? Stuff, right? We're all guilty of it. Let's be honest. But my point is this. Don't let what you perceive to be your lack of earthly rewards and blessings prevent you from looking forward to that which is really important, really significant. He says, my, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. So that's what we need to focus on, right? Focusing on the things of this life and this world will distract us. It will get us off track. It will prevent us from being all that we could be and should be in Jesus Christ. Edward Sheldon says, God will look you over not for medals or degrees, but for scars, battle scars in this great fight that we are now engaged in. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Salvation does not come by works, but rewards do, folks. And again, the great temptation for those of us who embrace what I believe is the true biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, not of works. Sadly, many people who identify as believers, as Christians, do believe that they must work to earn their way into heaven. That is particularly true of virtually every cult group. And what's really amazing, for example, is with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they've got all those people working their little heinies off, and yet they're taught only 144,000 even get to go to heaven. And yet everybody else is working too, hoping they might be one of the 144,000. You think Jesus died on the cross so that you might hope that you might get to go to heaven? He wouldn't have gone through all that unless he wanted you to know that you know that you know that you are saved, forgiven, filled with the Spirit of God, born again, and on your way to paradise with him. <laughs> Salvation does not come by works, but rewards do. President Calvin Coolidge once said, no person was ever honored for what he received. Ooh, I like that. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a reward, an award, right? No person was ever honored for what he received. Honor has been the reward for what he gave. Hello? And again, the great temptation for us is those who believe in salvation by grace through faith, not of works, is that we may underemphasize the importance of heavenly eternal rewards. Lest you think that heavenly rewards are of no importance, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know, writes Paul, that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. So this race that we run as believers, we're to run as though we're striving to be the winner of the race. The good news, everybody who does that is a winner. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Temperate, balanced, moderation, self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. We've been talking about the perishable crowns, all the things of this world that really in the light of eternity don't really matter. 
but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. So as we're running this race, this life for Christ, and we get sidetracked here and we get sidetracked there and we get off the path and so forth, Paul's saying, I don't do that. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, like a chicken with its head cut off. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, shadow boxing or what have you. I take it seriously like I'm in the fight for my life, which we are. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Again, that mistake that many people make, you know, now that I'm saved, I'm born again, filled with the Spirit, it's just going to be a piece of cake. You still have a flesh that's going to fight you for the rest of your life. The duality of who we are, the new man, the old man, the spirit versus the flesh, that fight will go on for the rest of our earthly lives. I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And I don't believe Paul's talking there about by disqualification, losing his salvation, but being disqualified for the, for the rewards that are awaiting him in eternity. It's possible for him to preach to others, win them to Christ, get them on the pathway to a productive Christian life, and yet lose his own rewards by his lack of faithfulness, his failure to run the race set before him, to bring his body into subjection, and so forth. One of my favorite matriarchs of the faith, Corey Ten Boom, said, Although the threads of my life have often seemed knotted, I know by faith that on the other side of the embroidery is a crown. You ever looked at a work of embroidery? The backside doesn't look like anything, let alone look good at all, does it? And you flip it over, and it's beautiful. Love that, don't you? I know by faith that on the other side of the embroidery, there's a crown. Last verse, verse 13, Jesus says again, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, Revelation 1.8 and 21.6, the Lord God is called the Alpha and the Omega. In chapter 21, verse 6, God is called the beginning and the end. In chapter 1, verse 17, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is called the first and the last. Here at the conclusion of Revelation, we're not quite there yet, but we will be probably next week. Here at the conclusion of Revelation, the Son of Man, Jesus, refers to himself by all three titles. Notice this. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Affirming and confirming, one last time, his eternal deity. He is God incarnate. He's the great I Am, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And that's the guy that we need to know more than anything else, right? Let's stand. I'm going to ask once again for a show of hands for prayer requests this morning. If you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. All over the sanctuary as usual. That's okay. God wants to hear from us. God wants to hear from us. God does answer the prayers of his people. How many believe that? Father, in Jesus' name we come to you now.
We thank you once again for your word. It's powerful, it's dynamic, it's active, it's alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it gets right down in there and does the spiritual surgery that we need. Thank you, God. Thank you for the wonderful, glorious promises of your word. Thank you, God, that we're living in the time that was prophesied in the book of Daniel, that these things will be closed up, shut up until the last days, the end times, and then you told John not to seal them, for the time is near, and here we are, Father. And we know, we thank you, we praise you. Jesus is right at the door. Lord, even as things seem to be the darkest they've ever been on this planet, and Jesus did say the tribulation would be worse than any other time in human history. And yet, at the same time, we are right at the edge of seeing Jesus face to face. Thank you, God, so much. We praise you for these exciting times in which we live, perilous times, but we know that you will guide us through these times and lead us into glory. Father, we lift up each hand, each person that raised their hand this morning, for those with health issues, that you would bless them with healing. Pour out your healing upon them, Father, whether it be a cold, the flu, sinuses, allergies, cancer, leukemia, lung disease, heart disease, whatever it is, Father, you are the great physician. You're the healer of our bodies. We ask for healing in Jesus' name, Lord, be poured out upon those in need of a physical touch this morning. And if it be someone that they're representing, we thank you that your Holy Spirit knows no boundaries. Lord, that you can send your spirit to anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place, and exact healing upon them in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for mental and emotional issues, which oftentimes are worse than the physical. The anguish, the, the mental torment, the anxiety, the despair, the depression, and all those other emotions that can overwhelm us and overtake us. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus for healing, for restoration. Lord, you told us that we would have the mind of Christ, and that is a whole, healthy, sound mind. And we pray that upon each one now that's struggling in that area. Lord, we pray for financial issues. Lord, those also can be very, very stressful, create a tremendous amount of tension in our lives. We pray for relief. First of all, that you'd help us to trust you absolutely and completely, no matter what our financial situation is. But Lord, that you would also take care of us as you promised to do so, to provide for our daily needs, our daily bread. Lord, that you would um, make up for the deficit, whatever it might be. Lord, if there's a need of a new job, that you'd provide it. If there's a need of a better job, that you'd provide it. But Lord, at the end of the day, we acknowledge you as our provider. You're the one who takes care of us, and we look to you, and we thank you, and we praise you for that. Lord, lastly, we pray for relationships that may be damaged or broken. We know the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy, but you've come that we might have life and life more abundantly. We pray that abundant life be poured out upon marriages, friendships, sibling relationships, Lord, uh, neighbors, workforce issues. Father, your word says that we should be at peace with all men as much as we are able. And so, Lord, help us to do our part to be those who promote and encourage uh, restoration, reconciliation, healing. But, Lord, we ask that you touch the hearts of those that we may be in conflict with, that they, too, would be willing to make amends, to make things right. We pray for healing in marriages, Lord, that you would bind the enemy from destroying the home, the family. And, Lord, when that does happen, we know that you are a God who heals, restores. We thank you. You promised you would restore the years the canker worm has eaten, Lord. Sometimes the enemy does eat away at our lives, but you are the one who can restore us. 
and make things right again. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Pray for safe travel as we leave here today, and we pray that you'd receive our final offering of praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.